Once again, I'd have you go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to be in verse 17 and following. And in so doing, we're going to turn a corner just a bit. If you are a person who likes clear directives and well-defined expectations, then we've arrived at a point in this epistle that will suit you well. From chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to the end of chapter 6, there are more practical applications for daily life than any other New Testament book. There are certainly longer epistles, Hebrews, Romans, the Corinthian letters, but no epistle of Paul or any other New Testament author for that matter gives more practical applications for daily life. However, we have to remember that these commands of Scripture are founded upon the doctrinal or indicative truths that were covered by Paul in the first three chapters. He did not start with commands. He started with the truth as the basis and the foundation for such commands. So to that end, I want you to read with me, beginning in verse 17. We're going to read down through verse 24. Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this portion of Scripture that calls us by great help, grace, and help of the Spirit to make application of the truths that you've made known to us. We pray especially that you would help us in regard to putting on the new man. We pray, Lord, as we conclude this service with the ordinance of the supper, that you would use these words, this portion of your word, to prepare us for that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Sinclair Ferguson has said, Our lives are to give practical expression and visible illustration to the power and reality of God's grace in us. If I were to summarize what he said, it would be something like this. It's not enough to say you're a believer. Your life should match your profession. 
And there is an entire New Testament book that has that as its theme, as its theme. It's 1 John. 1 John is full of admonition and instruction that would tell us it's not enough just to profess or to confess if you say or if you think in your heart and your mind but yet you don't actually perform and do then you have reason in your own heart and mind to stand and ask forgiveness before the Lord and to do some real soul searching God helping you the spirit of God helping to see whether or not you are in the faith to summarize it another way we could say that Grace given will work itself out in your life. The Lord has been gracious to you in salvation and redemption and justification. All of these great theological terms that when we understand them rightly, we are to glory in. But he has done these things in us so that we will live them out and bear witness to him, bring him glory. Let me remind you of a verse that we've covered that says just this. Really, it's a magnificent verse to try to grasp and comprehend the full meaning. It's the 10th verse of chapter 3. Notice how Paul summarizes the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God. He says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, these are Paul's words, not mine. The wisdom of God has taken individuals who are saved, put them together at his own good pleasure, building his church in such a way that the corporate body of Christ then becomes the greatest sounding board of the gospel, and this is according to the great manifold wisdom of God. So far-reaching is the church's voice, that even the principalities and powers are said here by Paul to be instructed. That the church is making known to them. Certainly that's shrouded in great mystery. We can't, I can't begin to fully understand it, but we can glory in that. And that as Christ brings us together, he so equips us and fits us and gifts us. That's what we've looked at in chapter 4 down to this point that he is enabling his church more and more to accomplish this task of making himself known and being light in a dark place, being the very salt of the earth. So what was began back in verse 1 of chapter 4, you might remember there Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He then gives some individual characteristics that each individual Christian should seek to apply to their own life. Things like humility or lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, forbearance, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on this excursus of what the church really is, how it's put together, the gifts that make it up. And all of these are given to us by our ascended Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish His purposes. And then he begins to move more back into the corporate setting where all of these individual gifts are brought together. 
they are all employed for the common good. The church as a whole is equipped. The church as a whole is edified. And that brings us almost full circle back to verse 17, where Paul picks up this exhortation to walk worthy of your calling once more. And this time he doesn't quit until the epistle is finished in chapter 6. So this is what we could call, I suppose, the beginning of the end. But it takes him quite a while to work through, first, all of these general exhortations. As the body, you are to do things like this. Put away lying, each one of you. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, except that which is good and necessary for edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. All of these general exhortations. But then he gets very specific. Husbands, do this. Wives, do this. Children, Paul has a word for you as well. And then we get all the way over and we finish out this epistle with this mysterious, this whole outworking of things that he's taught and employed being carried out in the sphere of what we oftentimes refer to spiritual warfare. So God helping us in time will... We'll get there and, and see how Paul places all of this firmly in that context as well. But to pick up in verse 17 with the admonition to walk worthy of the calling with which we are called. This also answers the question. Should the questions have arised in your mind, what does it mean for me to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? How am I to attain to the perfect or mature man of which Paul speaks? He answers those questions. He doesn't leave us to our own devices to see how this would play, it, play out in our lives. It's very much the same type of argument you'll hear, and this to me is really a circular argument. Those who speak of the law of Christ having abrogated the moral commands of the Old Covenant. Now, the law of Christ, I think, is a reference to the two great commands that Christ gives to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Then take a step back from that, ask the question, how do I fulfill these two great commands? Doesn't that take you back to the Ten Commandments? How are you going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Those first four commandments are the beginnings of how you carry that out in life. How are you going to love your neighbor as yourself? The last six commandments are the beginning of how you're going to do that. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to steal, to the, steal from them. You're not going to covet what they have, and so on. And so Paul here is telling us in much the same pattern, how are we going to arrive at the perfect man? How are we going to mature increasingly and steadily so that we can accomplish with the Spirit's help in us and attain at least to some degree of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? And notice, 
he begins in verse 17 by what we should not do. And then he balances that in verses 20 through 24 by what we should do. And this again is really the pattern of Scripture. Think, think about the Ten Commandments again. Not just the, the Ten Commandments are the moral representation or the attributes and characteristics of God expressed in ten words, if you will. Only two of those of the last six are expressed positively. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Children, obey your parents and honor them. And even the first of those, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, is then supplemented by negatives. Don't do this. Don't do this. And so it seems like in the heart and the mind of God, as we are taught and instructed and conformed more and more to the image of Christ and to the, the character of our holy God, it's helpful to be very clear on the front side of things that we must stay away from, things that we must not participate in or things that we must not give ourselves to. And this is where Paul begins. Notice, he says that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. The Ephesian church to which Paul writes comprised primarily of Gentiles who have been saved, who have been brought to a right and real understanding of who Christ is, what He has done for them. They are no longer aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. They are no longer standing outside as strangers of the covenants of promise. We looked at all of that in the second chapter. He has brought them in and grafted them into the family of God. Their salvation, very much the same, all glory to God, as the Jews who were converted. And so, there is a great distinction now made between these Gentiles, who were pagans, idol worshippers, who were now Christian, and the rest of the Gentiles. Paul is saying here that there is to be a clearly distinguished mark between the two groups. And interestingly, what we have here is one of the most explicit statements of what it means to live life outside of Christ. We'll come back to these, but just notice. To be outside of Christ is to have a, or, or is to be living in the futility of your mind. In vanity. Your understanding is darkened. John Trapp says it's like Satan has his black hand over your eyes and you can't see. He has blindfolded you. And that's another image that Paul would pick up on when he says this veil of sorts is taken away in Christ. But not just a futile mind or and a darkened understanding, it is to be alienated from the life of God. To be filled with ignorance because of the blindness of their heart. Being past feeling, 
have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. We want to come back and look at these individually probably next week, but just know that this is Paul's description, really, of what he said back in this first verse of chapter 2. What does it mean to be dead in sin? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, it means these things. To be in the futility of your mind, with a darkened understanding, being alienated from the life of God, and so on. So he gives great description to what it means to be dead in sin. And he's saying to these newly converted Gentiles, do not continue to walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. And he does so invoking the greatest authority of himself as an apostle. He says, this I say, therefore, you might remember back in the first chapter, first verse, he he denotes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And being so, he has the full weight of Christ's authority behind him. But then he adds to this, and this is unique somewhat to Paul. He does it in another place or two, but he says, and testify in the Lord. The testimony of Jesus Christ is brought in, and it's more than just some understand this as Christ is being brought to the witness stand, so to speak. But this really, I understand it more so that that Paul is saying that he is in Christ, in the Lord, and he is testifying that if you profess to be in Christ and in the Lord, then these things will mark you as a Christian as well. So with great authority, he is calling the Gentiles to live like the new men that they really are, to live like the new women that they really are. It's not enough just to have your head stuffed full with doctrine. That's the beginning. It's always the beginning. But that doctrine must play itself out in your life. Remind you of what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this epistle. He says, and he's being honest with himself, he says, I very much wanted it to end at chapter 3. Just teach me all of the truth about Christ. Teach me about my new standing in Christ. Teach me all of these glorious things. But then he says, obviously, Paul went on. What am I to be now in real, everyday, practical life How do I put these things into practice? And this is the same for us. Our orthodoxy, which is our right believing, must be wed to our orthopraxy, which is our right behavior or our right living. Those two things always have to go together. If you have one or the other, let's say you have orthodoxy with no orthopraxy, you know right things, you just don't do right things, then you are living what the Scriptures calls a licentious lifestyle. You are presuming upon the grace of God. But, on the other hand, if you have right action, orthopraxy, and you have no right orthodoxy, right believing then the trap that often is fallen into there is the trap of legalism. You're doing the right things, but you have no idea why. You have no idea that they are a reflection of the grace of God given to you, 
the only roots that these roots of morality sink down into are your own character. And you try to impose those on others. And you see them as being less than you if they aren't living up to the same standard. The only real basis that we have to call people to live a certain way in Christian life is the doctrine that's been given us in the first three chapters. Because we are truly saved, and I think this speaks again to the, the absolute profound nature of regeneration. To be born again changes everything. Changes everything. Touches every part of your life. Let me say it with Martin Lloyd-Jones' words. This is a quote direct from him. He says, Regeneration or being born again is the most profound change in the world. A Christian is not just a man who has decided to be a little bit more moral than he once was, or who has decided to join a church, or who has decided this or that, whatever those things may be. What makes a man a Christian is that he has been born again, that he has been given a new nature. He is a new creature. He is altogether different from what he was before. And this is the foundation of the first three chapters of this epistle. You're different. You've been given a new heart with new desires and new abilities, new capacities. Christ himself, who died for you, was raised for you, ascended into heaven, has given you some type of gift. Now, employ it in his service. Use what you've been given. You'll, you'll note here that Paul says, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. We need to understand that word. Children, this word does not mean the, the actual physical act of walking some of the older translations use the word conversation. It doesn't necessarily even there mean the way you speak. It encompasses everything in life. Matthew Henry says this word refers to a way of life in which everything is lived agreeably, suitably, and congruously to those happy circumstances into which the grace of God has brought you. Everything about your life the Scriptures call to match the grace that you've been given. So let's look at the first of these things that Paul says should not characterize the people of God. The first thing that they should, should be the marked difference in them. That they should not walk in the futility of their mind. Some of your translations use the word vanity. To have a vain mind. To have no purpose. No ultimate end. To live for the here and now. It's futility. Interesting, this is the first characteristic that Paul ascribes to those who are outside of Christ. No substance of mind. No real understanding. Do not live in this way. Be altogether different. To go back up to verse 1, he says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And with each one of these, it's as if you can apply the direct opposite. 
if you want the the positive to grow out of the negative just turn it around no longer live in the futility of their mind the vanity of their mind but live with minds greatly informed and renewed by what Christ has done for you and with each one of these characteristics it's as if Paul is here describing the day in which we live right I think every every generation of Christians thinks the same way because these are eternal truths that apply to everyone that has not been born again. There is a sense of futility in their life that is categorized by the futility of their mind. But then the list goes on. Their understanding is darkened. How often do the Scriptures use this metaphor of darkness and light? It's not just that their minds are vain and and empty of the things of God, cannot discern the things of God. It's that their very understanding, wisdom, if you will, is darkened. There is no measure of biblical wisdom by which these are, are operating their life from. It's all a materialistic, worldly, temporal wisdom. And Paul says, as the redeemed of God, as those who have been saved by Christ, you are no longer to walk in this way. Perhaps the most telling of all of these characteristics, being alienated from the life of God. To be a foreigner to the life of God. To not know the one who created you. And let me stop here and just try to make a point of application. This is not just true of Gentiles in Paul's day. If you have not professed faith in Christ, please hear what Paul would say of you. You are in the futility of your mind, your understanding is darkened. And you are alienated from the life of God. That's a proper and fitting description of an unbeliever. You are filled with ignorance. Go and read the book of Proverbs. How often do the Proverbs speak of the fool as compared to the wise? Your heart is blind. You are past feeling. Your conscience is calloused. And as a result, you've given yourselves over to lewdness. These few verses have a great parallel there at the the middle to the end of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, you see the downward spiral of a society into sin, unchecked by the truth of God. It always ends the same. It always ends the same. We can look at it in Scripture or we can look at it in history. A society that has no moral standing set by Christ, that has no moral compass, the moral compass of the new heart, always spirals downward into a lifestyle or lifestyles that the Scripture call unnatural, degenerate, This is the same thing that we find here. And again, even if you don't see yourself as this way, and I'm talking to an unbeliever, 
even if you would not equate what you might think as a harsh description of Paul, even if you will not own it, it doesn't change the reality of it. It's still a proper and fitting description of you. Past feeling. I want to talk about this description, one description for just a moment. What does it mean to be past feeling? It doesn't mean that you lack emotion. It doesn't mean that your finger doesn't hurt when you hit it with a hammer. That's not the feelings that it's talking about. It's the spiritual sense or the pricking of your conscience. It's out the window. I have a great illustration of this, and I, I know many of you will relate to it in some way or another. About 20 years ago, maybe 21 or 2, uh, Bambi and I took our three kids at that time. We moved to Fort Worth, southwest of Fort Worth, into a small frame house on the campus of Southwestern Seminary. Now, I grew up, y'all know where, where Direct is, right? Out in the out there. Bambi's upbringing was not far different. Neither of us had been really accustomed to city life, and yet we find ourselves in the southwest corner of downtown Fort Worth, or a little bit removed from downtown, not in the greatest of neighborhoods. And we had Shelby and Savannah and Seth. We moved into this small house. There was a train track about 100 yards behind our house in a busy, you know, depot section of Fort Worth. So this was not a train track that was just used on occasion. It was used frequently at all hours of the day and night. And I can remember the first week or so that we lived there, every time the train would come through and blow its horn, shut straight up in the bed, the kids would start to cry. But, you know, a phenomenon really happened that you all have experienced in some way or another. A couple of weeks of that, you sleep through it. It doesn't affect you anymore. Blow the horn as long as you want, as close to the house as you want. Let the house literally shake as the train goes by. And what once caused the greatest alarm woke you from a dead sleep every time now doesn't even phase you. It doesn't stir you at all. That's what Paul means by being past feeling spiritually. The truth of the gospel that told you and tells you that outside of Christ you have no hope, and that if you were to die in your sins, you would suffer an eternal punishment, being an object of the wrath of God through all eternity. That very truth that used to shake you and make you lie awake at night maybe cause you to have conversation with your parents, maybe cause you to, to read the scriptures, that which got your attention every single time. Now you hear it, and you remain spiritually asleep. You were past feeling. There is no, no quickening of your conscience. There is no impression of the, of the wrath of God that is ready to be poured out upon you doesn't affect you anymore. This is the description of an unbeliever. And if and an unbeliever, I think, that has been subjected to 
those things which should stimulate them, those things which should work in their life to get their attention, but it just doesn't anymore. I wonder if that's true of any of you. Children, listen to me. This is one of the greatest dangers of being raised in a Christian home. It is no doubt one of the, one of the premier blessings that God has given you. And in time, I trust that you will recognize that. But that, that great privilege and blessing that comes from being raised in a Christian home by Christian parents who love you and want to see you come to faith in Christ and pour everything in life into you to make that happen. There is a great signal danger. And that great signal danger is that you will at some point in life reach the point that you are past feeling. And those calls to faith in Christ, those calls to repentance, those calls to trust Him, those calls that have come over and over and over through the years, whether it be at home, whether it be at church, whether it be at grandpa's house, whether it be at your aunt and uncle's house, wherever those calls come, just don't affect you anymore. If that's you, don't be foolish and arrogant. Cry to God for mercy. Ask Him to prick your conscience and to make you feel that pricking. So when Paul says here, <clears throat> do not walk this way, in the futility of mind, with a darkened understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who are past feeling, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness. Now notice the end. You have characteristic, 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 characteristic result. You see that? The result is giving themselves over to lewdness. That's a word that we don't use much anymore. Some of you have never heard it outside of the Scripture. Lewdness refers to a lifestyle that really it refers to that lifestyle of Romans chapter 1 having exchanged the truth of God for the lie, glorying in sin, glorying in any expression of sin, and increasingly so, having a real heart and a love for it. Anything contrary to the will or the way of God is lewdness. This is the result. This is the end. To work all uncleanness with greediness. So again, not only do we have the characteristics of the unregenerate, unconverted, we have the result of that life. This is where it will take you. So let me ask you to deal honestly with yourself, and I'm, even as I'm saying that, I realize you are, you are bound up to the operation of the Spirit in your life, but know this, I've prayed for you, your parents have prayed for you, your grandparents have prayed for you, probably your friends have prayed for you, everyone is praying 
for you, whether you're a child or an adult, that the Lord would awaken you to this pit. This pit where the unconverted life will ultimately lead. This is not where you want to go. This is not where you want to end up. And it's no wonder that Paul says to these Christians, don't live like this. You've not so learned Christ. We're going to see that next week. There are, there are positive balances to these negative things that he has said. What does it mean to have learned Christ? Well, you've heard him first. You've been taught by him. As the truth is in Christ that you've put off all of these former ways of conduct. The old man grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And you have a not a futile, vain mind, but notice you have been renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So as we come to communion this morning, the Lord's Supper, very fitting for this passage in this way, because it is the shedding of Christ's blood and the breaking of His body that has saved us from these very things that Paul has talked about. If Christ had not bled and died for you, then your mind would still be enwrapped in futility. Your understanding would be dark. You would be alienated from the life of God. There would be ignorance that is engulfing you. Your heart would be blind. You would have no spiritual feeling. You would be living that out in lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. But thank God. Thank God that Christ has come. He has bled. He has died. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He has given himself so that we might be made right in the sight of God. This is the representation of the supper. Let me pray and I'm going to ask our men to come forward and we will distribute. Our Father, we come to you and we're thankful for the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ that these elements represent. We're reminded of what he has done unto the saving of our soul. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, that you would make application of these things into the heart of every one in the room that has not yet been born again. Lord, do that mysterious work. For those past feeling, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to feel the prick of conscience and the weight of the Word of God bearing upon them. The real danger that they are choosing to persist in in not coming to faith in Christ. Father, we, we trust that in your time you will accomplish these things. We're thankful for the gospel of Christ that can be not only preached, but believed into the saving of the soul. 
We ask that you bless this ordinance. You have given it to us as your church. So we ask for your blessing to rest upon it. That just as we take these elements and place them into our physical bodies, it would be a real and true picture that we have, by faith, partaken of Christ and that we are resting in Him. We pray and ask it in His name. Amen.